0: This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business.
1: The Labour and National parties disagree about how to regulate the finance sector. To talk about that, I'm joined by Commerce Minister Duncan Webb and National's Commerce Spokesperson... Andrew Bailey. Now, this Conduct of Financial Institutions Act, and there's been some disagreement around that. You think it goes too far, Andrew, that it's just not necessary, is that?
2: Yeah, look, um, first of all, we, we accept that there needs to be good conduct in New Zealand, that's that's essential, and, and the objectives of Kofi, are laudable and uh, should be what we should be seeking to achieve. The, we've got two things. First thing, is the fact is uh, it's very much a compliance-based approach. It's about filling in lots of uh, policies. And ultimately what that means, when I talk to uh, the CEOs of those businesses and I say to them, what will be the benefit for the customer? Most of them shrug their shoulders and can't really tell me, and it's a huge cost imposed on the sector. The second thing is, uh, at a much more strategic level, Kofi is just a continual and another layer up of all the different Uh, conduct regulations we have in New Zealand. We already have the conduct of financial institutions, we have the financial services uh, amendment bill, we've got uh, consumer guarantees bill, or act I should say, we've got uh, triple CFA, which uh, we've got the reserve bank requirements, we've got a banking code, we've got an insurance code, we've got the insurance uh, prudential supervisory act. All of those deal with conduct of different uh, different degrees. And what what I've been saying is, look, we need to have good conduct legislation, but it's just been lared up by successive commerce ministers over time. We want to simplify it. We want banks or insurance company or a financial provider to be, first of all, clear about their responsibilities and secondly, who they're accountable to. But and at the moment it's very murky.
3: You've made it too complicated. Uh, oh, well, I'm absolutely flabbergasted that uh, there's a suggestion that we should get rid of this con- conduct regime. Um, and look, I, I just don't think it's uh, complicated in the way that Andrew Bailey says. And, you know, he said it's a, a compliance-focused regime. And in fact, it's, it's, it's overtly the opposite of that. It's overtly and it's stated that it's an outcomes-based regime. I mean, it's really important... To, to say we all want good conduct by financial institutions, but you can't just hope for that. You've got to put f- frameworks in place. And it's no good having the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, is which is what we would be going back to. So we do have regimes where uh, banks, insurers, financial institutions get punished and have to uh, you know, compensate if things get wrong. And in the past period, 161 million was returned to consumers on the back of wrongdoing. But that's not as good as the wrongdoing not happening and so what the kofi regime does it says look let's have some frameworks in place a fair conduct principle put your clients first make sure you're selling them the right products make sure incentive regimes don't drive perverse behavior um, and have have a, a set of rules and principles in place within your organization that does that and honestly it's not too much to ask and every good institution has those in place already but it's about lifting up some of the behaviours which were identified not only by the fma in 2019 but the select committee that andrew and i sat on together in
2: 2019 in a select committee report hey look um look I, all businesses or it depends whether you doesn't matter whether you're an insurance company or bank you should have policies around how you engage with a customer uh, your complaints procedures, how you uh, develop new uh, policies you might want to sell into the market, and fourthly, what your fee structure is. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with that. The trouble is, uh, you, you've, if it was a principles-based approach, that would be great. Um, I think we should have principles for organisations uh, that they need to follow and ad- adhere to. They need specific policies, and I think those four are absolutely crucial. But the, the, where we go with Kofi is that uh, for Last two years, organisations have been preparing a multitude of policies. Most of them have been trying to nick it from overseas. The FMA hasn't allowed templates to be used. And then they're going to have to submit them to FMA over the next year and a half. You'll probably have someone who's not that qualified to opine on them because they've got to be done individually. There's this huge compliance cost and actually, as, the, as I said earlier, no one's going to actually tell me what the benefit to the customer is. That's well, from the, the, benefit, the benefit to the so, customer so is the avoiding issue,
3: $161 million so over the course of about on, just four years finish, but just being, being taken on the basis of things like dodgy insurance. The ANZ yeah. was selling credit card insurance that was recognised to be worthless cool. because they didn't have a system in place to ask
2: does this product treat okay.
3: this customer. And that's,
2: and that's the all pro- the Kofi does. And, no, no, this is the thing. There's 15 bit a million being set aside and uh, just to do the Kofi stuff, just get it up and running. There'll be an ongoing cost for businesses as well. I agree with you, businesses need to meet certain conduct and don't have a problem with that. As I said before, there's actually a plethora of conduct requirements they have to meet anyway. So that's not the issue. Right, no, that's not the issue. The issue is, that actually I'd like to see the FMA, I'd rather see the FMA using some of that money to actually, rather than spend it on lots of consultants and doing all that sort of stuff, actually go after the bad actors. And so ours is more of a risk approach. Make sure we've got much clearer conduct rules. At the moment, you've got to go looking in all these different acts and, and codes. You're not quite sure who you're so accountable to, and then actually have the FMA focused on the high
1: isn't that the... Ambulance at the bottom of the cliff rather than
2: stopping the no, bad behaviour? No, it's both. it's f- both. You've got to have the rules, but as I said, there is a
4: plethora well, of now, rules. Well, no, let's just remember right? the bad one, that no one,
2: called- no minister, no minister has actually sat back strategically and said, is it appropriate that we have five pieces of legislation, shortly best be six, plus two codes, and we have to be accountable? Someone has well, to be accountable. Well, let's just let intervene FMA, Reserve Bank, y- ComCom, uh, res- and all the others
3: that you have you, to do. You, you know, you're saying look out, look out for bad actors, but just let's remember who's been called out. ANZ, Cigna, AIG. They're not what you'd usually think of as bad actors. They're actually core players in significant markets and very significant players who haven't had the systems in place. And you're, you're, you're uh, creating a narrative which just isn't real. You're saying it's not principled based, it is. You're suggesting that FMA doesn't have the expertise to do this job, it does. And, and you're saying that there's a workload out there, which it's, yes, there's, there's some work to be done in putting some fair conduct principles in place, but it's just not as overburdening. And the interesting thing is, it's in the public domain that neither the insurers, nor the banks asked for this. They're happy with the regime as it is and I don't know who who the alleged stakeholders who you're saying have been crying out for this is because the stakeholders I'm engaging with simply aren't saying this. They actually want this to make sure that there is good conduct across the board and there's not rogues out there that we do lift up those those fringe players. At- Look, I know we could talk
1: about this forever I'm just wondering if we could move on to the Credit Contracts and Consumer Finance Act. Now I think Duncan Webb, you've got another sort of review going on of that?
3: Yes, yeah, so um, I, I'm I'm keen to make sure that we stay up to date. One of the things about the sector, and I think we probably would agree on this, is that it moves fast. You know, um, there's been pro- new. Pro- By now, payload is a really good example of a product that essentially was invented to get around the credit contracts and consumer finance framework. And, and I'm keen to make sure that we have a framework which looks after vulnerable customers, uh, but doesn't create unnecessary friction. So that we do have an effective market for finance, uh, and where there is low risk, uh, we don't overburden uh, financiers and customers with unnecessary, you know, uh, thresholds. So I've, I've asked. Uh, officials to go away. We've been engaging on it recently uh, to draft the terms of reference to say, well, how can we make this work better? But more importantly, kind of look ahead rather than trying to catch up with products as they develop. Look ahead and say, can we be a little more nimble and a little more nuanced? Not that it's not working right now. Um, We tidied up something, you know, uh, earlier this year uh, and we've got it about right there but we want to you know continually be adjusting this to keep up with the finance industry which is fast moving and that's
2: good it's good that we see innovation in the industry.
1: Andrew Bailey you you don't think it's working
2: as well as it could or? Uh, Look the triple CFA changes back in 2021 uh, were an absolute shocker Uh, and it's similar to Kofi the whole approach and what's happening under your government is that everything's about compliance and we had a, a minister that took a piece of legislation and allowed himself to be hoodwinked to allow, um, require banks of all people to have to ask questions like, do you have Netflix and whether you are having a cup of coffee? And so we, what we did is we lared up, again, regulations. The intent of the bill that we passed as a house was about protecting vulnerable New Zealanders from high-cost lenders. What we ended up with, uh, and of course, you have said you're gonna have a review, but it's still not where it needs to be. We need to take it back to focus it purely on high-cost lenders who are uh, extracting uh, profits out of vulnerable New Zealanders. And what we've ended up with this regulation that the minister approved is something that we've moved it from an economic issue, which is People couldn't get credit from uh, from reputable. Institutions, and we've now turned it into a social issue because those very same people, as a result of the of the regulations, now can't go to tier one, tier two lenders, and they're going back into the and the high cost lenders. It's an absolute shocker. Well, that's not quite accurate
3: because the high cost lenders, you know that. And we sat on that select committee as well together and did a lot of that work. But no, the the point is this: that the one of the main things we were aiming there was to get rid of really high-cost lenders, yeah. 50% plus. Yeah. And if you look in the market now, they're gone. It's a massive win. Truck shops are gone. Buyback buy transactions are yeah. gone, and high-cost lenders are gone. So that's a massive win. I know, but that and was a great way the Whilst the uh, regulations, you're right, um, there was a misstep in there, and we and we tidied that up, um, we absolutely think we've got it working effectively now. And we consulted widely on how to tidy those regs up and, and look, can I just say this: that given the interest rates is what they are now and what they oh, were. We go. Um, no, no. There's yeah. some people. There are. It, it is good that we had robust affordability testing because the interest payments, as you well know, are, are, you know, up to double what they were. so, on, so
1: on, on on Kofi and Triple CFA. I mean, it, it, in terms of mm. both the Labour and National parties, does this comes down? Does this come down to a, just a distinct difference in philosophy that National would be way more hands off? Labor no, no. Labour wants, I, to, be that, more, Labor no, wants no. to be more directive. There is, is,
2: there? There is a there is a, a principles difference, which is saying that we want to make sure that. We're very clear about obligations and who, who people are accountable to. At the moment, you actually have to get three licences if you're an, uh, an operator in the financial services sector. One was a reserve bank, one if you're a, a financial advisor, and one now under a Kofi. We are saying that we'd like to see one licence, we'd like to see simplification. We, the simple thing we hear time and time again is that we are cluttered with regulations with different we're not quite sure who we're accountable to and so what we'd like to do if we get into office is we want to be clear about what are your obligations and i said this earlier what are your obligations and who you're accountable to it's not about watering down the conduct requirements it's just about being much clearer about them and making sure the legislation that surrounds that is much clearer rather um, than just continuously doing more stuff
3: i do think that there is a real difference between the parties on this and it, it does um go quite deep When I look at what I want to achieve in this sector, um, it is uh, first and foremost the protection of the consumer um, and the protection of vulnerable customers at one end um, and making sure that it works for the wider consuming public at the other. Um, Now, if regulation is needed to do that, yes, I do want to make that regulation as effective, as efficient and as frictionless as possible but I'm not simply going to deregulate so that the banking sector can make more money, which
2: is essentially what I'm hearing from the National Party. No, no, I've got to rebut that. That's just simply not wrong. That's why I'm so angry about what, the, what ministers have done to the triple CFA. I think it's shameful what you've done, because you have made the most vulnerable New Zealanders now even more... Um, vulnerable to the people who are the high cost lenders because you've removed their access to Uh, Tier one, tier two lenders. For instance, the banks still tell me That's anecdotal, and it's not what I'm hearing. And it's not what I'm
3: hearing from the stakeholders who help people at the bottom of the cliff. Okay, the banks still. So I'm I'm, I'm challenging you to say, I want to see the evidence because it's not what I'm hearing when I uh, when I engage with people who deal with people in poverty. They are saying we need more protection, not less. They're not saying they're getting driven out of the
2: market. What I'm hearing from banks is that they're now they're list lending between 5 and 10% less than what they would have done prior to the changes that the Labour government put in in bank, The banks who are currently the subject shameful. of a Commerce that Commission inquiry into excess profits would say that. See, and the, therein lies the difference. See, we would, that's why I want to make sure we are protecting the vulnerable New Zealanders. And I think that's the issue. You've lost sight of what the real <laughs> goal is. No, look, and the fact of the matter is that the market it has segments
3: and they don't agree with each other. And certainly um, the banking sector would love to see fewer regulations. Is that just sh- the banking sector, not, by the way? Well, um, certainly the banking sector it's would love to the see the fewer regulations sector, yeah. in their sector of the market so that they can... It's not just
1: about the banks. You know, I think, I think yeah. probably we're going to have to have you two agreeing to disagree.
2: Yeah.
1: I've got just one last issue I'd like to... Raised with you, and that's the recent Mainziel decision. And there've been issues raised there, and, and a number of people have come out and commented about there needs to be some review of the Companies Act around, particularly around directors' duties and the like. Do, do both of you? Do you have a view on that? Is it something that you would look at, either party? Um,
2: well, th- what do you? you
3: well, look, we don't we we don't have a particular policy platform um, in respect of. The Companies Act review—it's not something that's front and centre in the middle of this um, political maelstrom that is the election. Um, having said that, you know, the Companies Act is an important um, cornerstone of commerce, uh, and we want to get it right. At the same time, directors are held to account for a reason, um, and the balance in the Companies Act between the rights of creditors uh, for a company not to be conducted when it's insolvent or managed recklessly, is really important. Um, I haven't read
2: the main zeal decision, um, but I certainly will be looking at it with considerable interest. So, uh, first point is that we do believe the Companies Act needs to be modernised, needs to take into account digital changes that have taken place, so uh, we would like to see the um, an upgrade to the Companies Office to reflect current business practices. With regard to this, um, tension between directors acting in the best interests of companies and also being prepared to take a risk, because that's the nature of business, and on the other side is making sure you're not trading recklessly on behalf of, and because obviously it has an impact on creditors. Look, um, the main zeal case has highlighted some issues. We just need to make sure we get the right tension because the last thing we want to achieve is we get to a point where people just decide not to be directors, and particularly on publicly listed companies. So we've got to get that balance very appropriate, um, and particularly with changes around professional indemnity now that increasingly comes into legislation that's been passed in recent times. We just need to make sure that people are still prepared to have a go because New Zealand economy is founded on having a strong business sector, Uh, because ultimately they pay taxes and and fund new roads and hospitals and schools. So it's a very important issue to deal with. Andrew
1: Bailey, Duncan Webb, thank you for your time.
2: Thanks very much.
5: China's sluggish economy is weighing on New Zealand and Australia, and there's caution about the medium-term outlook. Reporters Lachlan Cahoon and Jonathan Mitchell have been investigating for Shoeshine. First, to John in Wellington, what's the immediate pressure to New Zealand's commodities and dairy?
4: Afternoon, Kalidia. We've noticed that lacklustre Chinese demand, particularly present in the past few weeks, and especially on New Zealand. Uh, within China itself, consumer confidence data is quite weak, as well as its manufacturing and output data. Uh, Fonterra lowered its forecast payout twice in a matter of weeks. And that's because of subdued dairy auctions. Now, the whole milk powder price, which is our key export and is linked with that payout, is is down to several year lows. And to give a bit of context, in 2021, New Zealand exported about 45% of its dairy to China. Uh, This year, we're looking at roughly closer to 30%.
5: A lower forecast payout to farmers it's not good for farmers or the economy, is it?
4: The current forecast sitting at about $6 to $7.50 a kilo of milk solids, midpoint $6.75 is what's deemed to be below break even for many farmers. Uh, for Shushan, I interviewed Rabo researchers Emma Higgins and she said a more realistic break even price would be in the high 7s. With those fewer dollars, that means farmers will be earning less money. They'll be looking to trim their costs, uh, look at things like fertiliser and feed, and and maybe even defer some of that important uh, maintenance as well, and go out in the community and spend on new machinery and equipment. Uh, What was really stark was one of the recent forecast revisions meant a potential $1 billion wipe from the New Zealand economy.
5: So how worried is the Reserve Bank about what's going on in China?
4: Yeah, we've heard recently from Adrian Orr and Christian Hawkesby. Uh, Orr told MPs at a recent Finance and, and Expenditure Select Committee that China's going through one of the most robust and structural changes in decades, and that doesn't bode well right now for New Zealand commodities. I guess the central bank sees China as a medium-term risk, especially if its economy takes longer than expected to recover. Um, Right now, the central bank sees dairy prices recovering next year, and one silver lining, perhaps, unlike previous dairy downturns, we're not awash with milk at the moment, so that could support prices in the near term.
5: Now, if we go over to Australia, to Lachlan, Um, iron ore exports are the big focus to Australia, to China, aren't they?
6: Yes, Keller, just as, uh, as milk powder is to New Zealand, iron ore is uh, is the main thing um, that we look at um, in our relationship with China. And it's gone from being a major driver of our economy to a significant risk. Just to give you an example of the size of it, we export over $110 billion, Australian dollars worth of iron ore to to China each year. That's 80% of the of the iron ore that we produce. Um, and um, China accounts for about one third of our exports. So we're extremely dependent on, um, on iron ore. And a lot of that goes into the Chinese property industry. Uh, obviously, with the um, with what's happening with Evergrande and, and a lot of those property developers over there, uh, iron ore a very sensitive commodity to, to to the Chinese economy. So so, you know, it's it's the main game in town. You know, 110 billion dollars worth of exports each year. The next largest export uh, from Australia to China is lithium, which has just overtaken LNG at 11 billion dollars. So so here um, it's all about the iron ore.
5: Mm -hmm. There's also some pressure on the Australian dollar, isn't there?
6: Often the Australian dollar is seen as a proxy for China and a proxy for the, for what's happening with iron ore and uh, and in recent um, weeks the Australian dollar has been weak. It's at sixty five U S cents today, but but forecasts are that it could fall significantly. I think Rabo have suggested that it could fall to sixty three U S cents this year. There, uh, um, the, the Commonwealth Bank of Australia is is even more bearish. They've suggested that it could go to uh, sixty cents or or below, and um, and that would have a big impact on um, on on the RBA, for example, which. Um, which they've identified um, China as a major risk as well uh, in our economy. So you would expect that the RBA would be leaving rates on hold, cutting towards the end of next year. But if um, if the dollar continues to be weak, then that gives them very little room to do that. And uh, they may even have to think about an interest rate rise if things get really, really bad.
5: Mm. Are the RBA and the RBNZ quite aligned in their thinking on China, on their particular economies?
6: It would seem that they're both very aligned. Um, John, I would be um, best to talk to but what's happening with the RBA said, the, the RBA have identified China as, as a major risk. Um, they've sort of sanguine at the moment. They've noticed that um, they're really reliant on um, on the, the Chinese response to the downturn and hoping that the Chinese will, will ease their monetary policy, which they've started to do already to stimulate demand. Um, but they're very, very cognizant with uh, with what's happening in China, looking to, to the Chinese to, uh, to, to, to stimulate their economy and Really, uh, we're at their mercy. We're at the mercy of what happens uh, in China with Chinese demand. Mm.
5: So where's this all heading, do you think, Lachlan? What's China going to do? Do you think they're going to cut rates further to try and stimulate the economy?
6: Well, they have a command economy um, and... um you know, under Xi Jinping, the um, economically, I was talking to Professor Tim Harcourt from UTS, who's a, one of our uh, most experienced China, China watchers. His take is that uh, under Xi, um, China has moved very much to the left on uh, on domestic policy. And so you would expect that, um, that if um, the economy does start to, um, to to tank a little bit over there, there would be sort of some significant macro measures that would be taken. Um, easier interest rates would be one of them. Um, but really, Australia is um, is, is at, um, in a funny position with, with China. We're incredibly dependent on them um, economically. Um, we've thrown a lot in with them economically over the last two decades to the point where where they've driven our growth. But yet, at the same time, uh, diplomatically, um, there, there's a freeze, and um, and things are going um, only in one direction. Um, with us joining the, the AUKUS Orcas Pact, of course, and and signing on for those nuclear submarines. So there's there's a big dichotomy um, in in the Australian public debate on um, on what's happening with China. Should we um, fall in line and do what they say, or should we, uh, or should we continue uh, um, as the Hawks in, Chi- in in Canberra would suggest, continue to to build up our military and uh, potentially confront them? So. We have no real idea on, um, on on where this is going to go. The the Albanese government has had a, a couple of small wins. Um, they've got um, the the tariffs off the barley exports, but they're only worth one point two billion dollars a year. They're looking at bringing back the uh, the tariffs off off wine. That's twelve billion dollars a year. That's really just um, you know around the margins and the edges. So the, so the big thing is um, is, is iron ore and uh, and also the the diplomatic relationship and where both of those are going to go. You know, it's crystal ballgazing in 2024.
5: Thanks, Lachlan, and thanks, Jono, in Wellington.
0: Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz.
7: The government has lifted the last restrictions on COVID-19, meaning employers and employees are faced with new questions about sick leave, working from home and other issues that arise in the wake of this new phase of the pandemic. Joining me to talk about the impact on employers is Hannah Tavita, a solicitor with Simpson Grierson in Wellington. Hi Hannah, thank you for coming. Now, um, tell us about what kind of things lifting these restrictions does affect or could affect
8: Yeah, morning, Dita. thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so as we know, on the 15th of August, we had the last of the COVID-19 restrictions being lifted by government, so now there is no longer the requirement to wear a face mask when visiting health facilities, and they've also removed uh, the seven-day isolation period if you've contracted COVID. Um, And so we've seen a few tensions or perceived tensions that we might see coming forward, particularly in relation to sick leave. We understand that the government has recommended a five day isolation period and we just see where employees may have exhausted their sick leave. There's gonna be some complications here because prior to these restrictions being lifted, we had a lot of support. We had employers bringing in things like COVID-19 leave to help with employees um, not having to exhaust their sick leave balances if they did contract COVID-19. We also had a lot of government support, such as uh, short-term leave payments to help with absences, um, payments to help employers where employees needed to be off for that seven days. And all of that is now going to be removed or has been removed. And so we just sort of wonder what's going to happen next. And it's a little bit of a, watch this space but you know asking an employee particularly in environments where they can't work from home uh, to stay home for five days if they've got no sick leave, um, that's a big ask to ha- have someone unpaid for five days at home.
7: Yeah, they're
8: basically asking
7: the employers you take the, you take the hit now if, if there is COVID isolation. I, I imagine people just won't do that, don't you think?
8: Yeah, yeah, I think that is definitely um, one outcome that we could see. It's, but I think for us, we've noticed with our clients that a lot of our clients will be guided by the government recommendations of that five day isolation period. But what is that going to mean for employees? Are they going to be forthcoming if they contract COVID? Or are they just not going to say anything because, you know, there is that tension there? It's not like a cold where you might need a day off or, you know, just couple of days to recover it's actually five days you need to be at home um, and you need to be isolating is the recommendation. So if an employer comes to you and says
7: what am I going to do now what are the kind of the top-line things that you're recommending?
8: I think at this stage it's always just And it's going to be dependent on your circumstances and your area of employment. If an employee can't work from home, that's going to be obviously a lot more complex. But if you're in an environment where you can work from home and the employee does feel well enough to work from home, we would always recommend, if they're in agreement, to do that. And and most of the time, employees are. But again, that's another tension. You don't want to have to encourage employees to work when they are sick. Um, So it's just going to be we think a bit of a feeling out period of how it's going to work but I is what you were saying DJ, I think it's we're going to see things like employees just not being upfront about even contracting COVID mm. um and and what that might look like we're not too sure. Hannah you also mentioned
7: working from home and we've seen two high profile cases in the employment relations that have kind of related to this can you explain what they mean?
8: Yeah yeah so we've had um this is a big issue that we're seeing for a lot of our clients at the moment is trying to get employees back to work, and with these COVID-19 restrictions being lifted now, we're wondering if we're going to see a more sort of robust approach from employers, and um, the cases that I've referred to uh, with you, Dita, is the first is Johnson and Servin Media Limited, and in both of these cases, Johnson, and then the second one is Bullen and Flyway Transport Limited, both of these cases dealt with work from home proposals that were declined. and in the first case, uh, in Johnson, it, the application was declined, but the authority unhelpfully didn't give much guidance as to you know why um, they felt that it was appropriate. So they said it was reasonable for the uh, employer to decline this proposal, but there wasn't much guidance as to why. But it basically is showing us that employers can say no. You don't have to um, say yes to a proposal for an employee to work from home if it's not going to work for your organisation. But then in The other hand, we've got Bullen, which um, this came out just in July, so two months after Johnson. Um, And and I do need to disclaim that in this case, it was a vaccine-related issue, so the employee didn't want to be vaccinated, and she had proposed to work from home, and she felt that her role wouldn't be um, substantially different, and she could perform that role from home, um, and her employer didn't accept that. This case was quite interesting because, yes, the employer was held to that higher threshold due to the COVID-19 uh, provisions that were enacted into the Employment Relations Act so they had to exhaust all options and termination was in scope in this case but basically the authority in this case said that they hadn't consulted with the employee enough to for her to understand why her proposal was rejected and I think that's just why i brought those two cases up because, and yes, different environments, different landscapes but one we see basically hardly any consultation. In Johnson, we see, no, you can't work from home, we want you to come into the office and that was fine. And then we see Bullen where they actually met with the employee twice. they explained to her why they felt she couldn't work from home. Um, they went through her roles and duties and explained that you know a lot of it was customer facing, and it was held that they hadn't met that consultation, good faith standard, mm. um, and that she didn't understand why she couldn't work from home. So, I guess it's just another signal to employers that those obligations are there, and whilst it's frustrating and you're wanting to get people back into work, um, there's still those obligations to consult and, and to act in good faith when you're doing that.
7: Is there any situation where someone who could do something from home wants to do something from home and would override an employer's right to get them back in the office, do you think?
8: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, look, from a legal standpoint, if your employment agreement says this is your location of work this is where you're required to work an employer should be able to say this is where we want you to work you know you have to be here five days a week 8 30 to 5 this is where you're required to be that's what we'd say is the legal standpoint but what's happened is COVID has happened and it's changed the landscape it's changed the environment and so now what is reasonable has shifted and we know that we can work from home in those white collar jobs that you're talking about and we know that we can do it effectively. So is it reasonable then for an employer to say, you need to come back into the office 100% of the time? Probably not, um, but even just this morning there was a case in the UK Times, an article about uh, Amazon's chief executive, um, Andy Jassy, and he's basically said to his employees, "Come back to the office or else." And and in that instance, he's talking about a hybrid approach that they've adopted, which is what we think we're going to see with a lot of employers. You know, three days in the office, two days from home. You know, trying to be reasonable, trying to um, you know find a balance. But he's talking about his staff are not even coming in under that approach and and I think it is reasonable for the employer in that instance to say look we need you in the office, we need collegiality, we need you know team culture. So employers
7: have to consider the process and do the process correctly but they also probably are best minded to be reasonable in what they're asking.
8: Yeah absolutely I think if you're you know if you're in a a workforce where you can consider work from home applications and proposals, I think it, the, the first place to start for an employer is really assessing why it is you don't want the employee to work from home and, and is that reasonable? because as we just said Dita, the, the landscape has changed and what is reasonable has changed so if you can make it work it's about finding that balance of what works for the employer but also what works for the employee.
7: Hannah thanks very much for coming in. Thank you.
9: Ben and George Bostock are the Hastings-based siblings behind the Bostock brothers' brand of free-range organic chicken, which you may have seen everywhere from supermarket shelves to restaurant menus. The brothers pride themselves on providing their chooks with a lifestyle that shows through in the end product. Joining me now is Ben Bostock. Hi, Ben.
10: How's it going? How's it going?
9: Good, good. Thanks for joining me from uh, from Bostock headquarters in, in Hastings there, I gather. Yep, yep. <laughs> excellent,
11: excellent. <laughs> right there.
9: Um, so... Let's go back to the start. How did you? What's the genesis of Bostock Brothers? Uh, I, I know your family has been in organic horticulture for for years. So how did you get the start and decide on chickens?
10: Yeah, um, good question. So I was um, actually living in Auckland, um, and I was working for a company um, exporting uh, lamb and beef overseas. And um, it was actually on the balcony of our flat that one of my friends, um, that actually started, uh, started with a few other friends, Bird and wire, and he was talking about how expensive uh, free-range chicken is. So that got um, got me thinking how um, you know, with our family farm, has grows organic uh, maize and organic feed, and maybe we could do something like that. And it was um, it all kind of started from there and. Started researching um, what free range chicken means. And we went and I actually went and had a friend that had a free range chicken farm. So we went down and, and had a look. And I was completely horrified at how large scale the chicken farm was. There was about 30,000 chickens in the shed. And it was completely not what I expected free range chickens to be. So that's what um, moved me on to looking at the, the organic, um, what, what organic welfare means, and, and looking at much, much smaller flock size sheds and kind of the free range that you would imagine when you're buying a free range chicken, what free range would be. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, um, I quit my job, which was, um, quite, quite a big deal back then. Um, gone from, gone from a job to no job and decided to travel around and, um, around the, around the world and look at all the different production systems and in France, I traveled, spent about two weeks in France in France and came across a, um, these small chalet, mobile chalet-style, um, shedding system where you only have a couple of thousand birds in the shed instead of thirty thousand birds in the shed, and you um, and and move the chickens through. So I, was, uh, I I thought this is this is something that we can do in New Zealand, and and um, no one was showing the you know no producer in New Zealand was the, the three other producers were showing the um, you know you wouldn't really see meat chickens. Um, on Instagram or Facebook, you wouldn't, no one ever really saw a meat chicken. So um, the, so that's where the, the idea started and um pretty naive really at the start. We thought that um, well, at the start, I thought that it was just as simple as putting some chickens under some trees and, and throw them some feed and, and um, I don't know, they pluck themselves and go in a bag, but, um, but lo <laughs> and behold, it's been a, it's been a massive journey since. Yeah.
9: Yeah. Oh, so that was about 10 years ago, was it?
10: That was um, yeah 2013. So 2014 we pro- we uh, processed our first chicken, yeah. which was a um, was a sight in itself. Yeah.
9: <laughs> so um, even though you know your family uh, has a background in um, horticulture and and and. Um, Organic farming, those kind of things. It really was sort of starting. Apart from having the land, obviously, um, it was sort of starting from fresh in terms of your expertise and and, and growing it from there.
10: Yeah, so we were, um, so so it was. So I'm uh, very fortunate to um, get a, a loan from from dad. It was a a loan that we're still paying back um, to to initially start up with a few sheds. And um, and a processing and a processing site, but we're very lucky that we've had um, we've we've had the family um, the family company uh, you know the family business down with dad's business down here to help set up you know so we could set up a, a proper structure and, and a real culture in the company which we're which we're very fortunate about.
9: Okay, so in terms of um, the I suppose the scale of the business. Um, is there a bit of tension between obviously wanting to have small flocks and, and, and kind of that that organic, that human touch, to, you know, building the kind of scale that you might need for to distribute within the supermarkets and, and you know, obviously meet demand here and, and internationally as well?
10: Yeah, so um, we're um, it's incredible the scale of um, you know, chicken that's produced. Um, around the world, but especially in, 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 in New Zealand, where we produce 1% of the New Zealand's um, production. And, um, and we, we feel that this, this is a good scale that we're at now. Mm. Um, we want to um, do, do added value products, including the crumbed tenders, breaded tenders, um, for the, in the frozen category, especially for kids. Um, but in terms of in terms of our size, I think that we're at a happy medium between scale, and and just uh, huge production. So okay. yeah, it's a it's a good question. Yeah.
9: Okay. And in terms of exports um, internationally, are you uh, expanding overseas?
10: Yeah. So um, we up to about fifteen percent of our um, production goes overseas now, and um, we, we we're very focused on making sure that we uh, fulfil our um, our domestic market first and, and make sure all our local customers are, are filled but then we're with uh you know also trying to grow um the export market we've got it's a, it's amazing how um in the market New Zealand it's it's not only organic but also the New Zealand um, story really sells and you you always hear about that with the um you know in the news over the years but it is it is remarkable and in, in dubai um we're competing against uh, brazilian and, and u.s organic chicken
9: mm.
10: and um of course we can't produce it um nearly as cheap as they can and but we're but we're managing to to grow our volumes and we've got um two weekly air freight shipments that go to dubai each week which is which is fantastic um the the yeah the air freight is um hugely expensive but they managed to um to keep buying so that's um no it's very exciting we've been exporting there for about three years so it's mm. um so it's pretty consistent yeah
9: and i suppose part of that is you say the new zealand story it's it's the story of of, of you and your brother how do you feel about sort of being the face of of the business and, and getting out there doing some of the promotional stuff
10: yeah well i think since the start and since we first you know saw the difference between the factory free range and organic free range and what these small chalets mean is that we, we always wanted to um, have a brand that was where it was all about transparency where people can see the um, see the producer we're constantly out there filming on the farm see the see the chickens have you know, having this live stream of the chickens on the farm where it's that full transparency where um, this is the real deal uh, chicken and a lot of the other free range uh, brands have just got either cartoon brands or or stock photos from from 10 years ago so um, so we're just co- that's that's what we're, that's that's our difference and that's it's quite tough um, edu- you know, putting uh, educating the consumers that the difference between organic free range and free range is so different um, hence the price mm. um, and and it's, it it comes down to mainly the the difference in flock size, but also you know, not using things like antibiotics to grow the the chickens a lot faster and more efficient. You know, the, pumping the chickens up, antibiotics are used for growth promotion. So we're um, so we've got to try and tell that story out out there, so people can, when that you know, if they uh, they do want to spend a bit more on uh, chicken, that they know that um, where the where the dollar's going.
9: Mm. Do you have faith in that? Sort of organic megatrend globally, um, you know, particularly as as I mentioned, sort of with more cost conscious consumers sometimes. Um, but the, that organic and, and sort of that, I suppose that that more um, um, that natural story um, will feed through into more consumers. I
10: think that um, people there's always there always pe- people will be out there wanting the the real product. And um, and uh, I think what's happening with the free range um, space is that they're just pushing into the mass market, where it's becoming going to become the the normal baseline as free range, and um, it's still using the same feed, um, the same processing, the same size sheds with a little pop hole outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, having that transparency and and being able to actually show what we do and Without hiding anything, as um people are always going to want to to to, um, to buy that, and the, and that's mm-hmm. that feeling.
9: Thanks, Ben. Thanks for joining me.
10: Yeah, no, awesome. Cheers, tears cheers, cheers.
0: NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz.
1: New Zealand Green Investment Finance is lending $25 million to Eastland Generation to help fund connection assets for its new geothermal plant. To explain why, I'm joined by Green Investment Finance's Chief Investment Officer, Jason Patrick. So, why this particular um, loan facility?
11: Well, as you know, uh, the work of Green Investment Finance focuses on all of the emissions important sectors in New Zealand, including energy we've had a long-standing participation in the renewable generation sector, not only generation assets themselves, but the important infrastructure surrounding it. Um, We, in particular, have uh, noticed, and um, working with our stakeholders have noticed, that there's a real need for connection asset finance. That work's been led by our investment manager, Guy Wilson. And we've had a lot of traction with stakeholders. So this particular opportunity arose through conversations with Eastland, and we're really happy about it.
1: Can we just explain, sorry, what connection assets are? What are are we talking about?
11: Yeah, so the specifics are it's, you know, the substation kit, uh, the switching kit, et cetera, et cetera, the associated infrastructure, the last mile connection, if you will, associated with generation. So it, so it, it might be
1: money that goes to the actual building of the actual generator itself.
11: Uh, No, not the generation. So in this case, it's connection between the generation asset, as you mentioned, a new geothermal asset, and actually existing uh, assets as well, and ultimately the the grid as as run by Transpower.
1: Because Eastland, I think back in July, started the capital raise to try and get a partner in for that. So this, this loan is on top of that capital raise that they are doing for the actual
11: plant itself that's right uh, as you know Eastland's a you know a large sophisticated entity so in addition to their you know their equity providers they of course have uh, relationships with the main banks for uh, in a lending relationship and you know, we are very happy to be able to engage for this particular opportunity as well
1: well so what, why then green investment finance if, they, you know, if they've got mm. these connections with other banks with uh, mm. with other I guess commercial entities sure why would you need it then to come in in this way
11: yeah, so for a variety of corporate finance reasons, as you know, um, in terms of prioritisation, capex spending at given points in time, equity versus debt needs at different points in time, connection assets are one of those things for a company like Eastland that doesn't always get prioritised. So we were able to work with them and identify the opportunity and get it done.
1: How And how long term is this loan? for? Uh,
11: it's think, an eight-year term. Eight-year term. Mm.
1: And so and on usual commercial terms then?
11: Of course, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, <coughs> What's what's particularly attractive, I guess, about the Eastland project? I mean, Mm. there there are presumably others, or are you looking at others too of of a similar nature as well?
11: We are, but uh, this one in particular, I think some of the features, uh, besides the fact that these connection assets are indeed a good opportunity for us, a good opportunity for an entity like Eastland, overall for NZ Inc., um, we are going to be looking for more and more of them as well. This is an opportunity that we have identified that can be replicated and scaled.
1: So, in that sense, then, as part of it is that you hope it will help. Sorry, you, you hope it will help boost other companies to do similar things, that it might become a yeah. I don't know a, a spur for that kind of um, future investment elsewhere.
11: Yeah, yeah, we, we expect it and and hope that it will. In fact, um, again, we've identified this opportunity working with the stakeholders that we, we speak to regularly in the market. We think there will be a lot more of these to come.
1: And in that sense, you talk about other, I guess, commercial partners involved. Mm. Is part of that hope too, which I think is the long-term goal of, of the fund, is to get them making more of these investments, these sorts of investments, and investing more in these kinds of arrangements?
11: That's exactly right. So, as I think you know, a key part of our mandate is to drive other capital into our work generally and our work you know, in specific investment opportunities like this one. So. Um, in fact, we've achieved that to date. We, we've already driven more capital um, from other market sources than our own capital deployed. So we expect to always be able to bring in others along the way. Yeah.
1: And is that the case in this Eastern investment? And do do, do other partners, if you like, are given greater confidence by the fact? that you're investing
11: that's right so um, our participation in financing like this obviously makes it uh, more attractive for existing lenders to Eastland in general and for uh, the finance partners as part of the assets that are being supported in this case the geothermal asset Jason Patrick thank you for your time thank you
0: and that's been this week's people in business thanks for listening if you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion head over to nbr.co.nz